You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. It's mostly cyber espionage today with a mixture of influence operations. Google has warned both major U.S. presidential campaigns that Chinese and Iranian intelligence services are after their staffers' email accounts. Russia, China, and Iran devote some purposive media attention to U.S. civil unrest. Johannes Ulrich from Sands on malicious PowerPoint add-ons. Our guest is Bill Harmer from SecureAuth on credential carelessness. And Qatar's rivals in the Gulf continue their information campaign against Doha. This time, it's bogus news of a coup. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 5th, 2020. Google's threat analysis group has warned the U.S. presidential campaigns of both major parties' presumptive nominees that Chinese and Iranian threat groups are targeting campaign staffers' personal emails. Google's Shane Huntley tweeted the findings yesterday and subsequently clarified that the threat groups in question are China's APT-31, Hurricane Panda, and Iran's APT-35, Charming Kitten. The Wall Street Journal reports that Hurricane Panda is interested in the Biden campaign. Charming Kitten has targeted the Trump campaign. Both efforts are believed to have been unsuccessful. The Washington Post says the two groups have different interests. Hurricane Panda is collecting intelligence on former Vice President Biden's views and those of his staffers, while Charming Kitten is interested in undermining President Trump's re-election. Russia is also engaged with the election, but neither Iran nor China appear to be following Russia's playbook, the Post observes. So, to summarize, Chinese intelligence services want to find out what's on candidate Biden's mind, and Iranian intelligence services would very much like to see President Trump's re-election campaign fail. The drone strike that killed General Soleimani is offense enough, and the increasingly tight U.S.-led sanctions make Tehran's dislike for the president overdetermined. The Chinese interest in collection is, as usual, thorough and extensive. As the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Clint Watts told the Washington Post, quote, China doesn't just want to know Biden's opinion about China. They want to know all of Biden's staff's opinions about every part of the world, end quote. So, not only thorough and comprehensive, but also very much along the lines of traditional collection. Iran's collecting too, but Tehran's collection seems more focused. Iran is interested in obtaining and then releasing damaging material. 
That would indeed be a page from Moscow's 2016 playbook when Cozy Bear successfully and quietly penetrated campaigns and when Fancy Bear doxed the U.S. Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign, releasing emails that embarrassed the victims. Should Tehran obtain comparable dirt on this year's Republican presidential campaign, they can be expected to engage in the same sort of malign, involuntary, enforced transparency to which Fancy Bear subjected the Clinton campaign in 2016. Of course, as the Post and others routinely observe, it's also possible that foreign espionage services could use access to hacked email accounts and other resources to mount disinformation in the form of spoofs and fakes. The fakes could either be deep or shallow. As long as they find takers, it doesn't matter because this is information warfare, not art. That sort of fakery didn't happen with the email compromise of 2016, but it's certainly a possibility in 2020. U.S. Attorney General Barr yesterday said in brief remarks about ongoing civil unrest that, quote, we are also seeing foreign actors playing all sides to exacerbate the violence, end quote. The social media study group Graphica independently described influence campaigns by Russia, China, and Iran, all of which seek to further their agenda by, respectively, drawing attention to fissures in American society, discrediting U.S. criticism of human rights violations, and undermining the legitimacy of U.S.-led sanctions. This particular influence campaign doesn't seem to be marked, at least not yet, by the characteristic troll-farming inauthenticities that became the distinctive stigmata of earlier Russian influence campaigns. One aspect of influence operations has been the interplay between state-run news outlets, troll farms, and useful marks who more or less uncritically accept and amplify the lines the state's operators are pushing. Facebook has for some time enjoyed success in identifying and blocking what Menlo Park calls coordinated inauthenticity. The social network is now beginning to address authentic media whose viewpoint might be determined by their government controllers. Facebook announced some months ago that it would begin labeling accounts run by state-controlled media. This long-anticipated labeling began yesterday. The labels appear in the Ad Library page view on Pages and in the Page Transparency section. Facebook is looking specifically for outlets that are wholly or partially under the editorial control of their government, so Sputnik and RT would get the Russia state-controlled media label, and China Daily gets the controlled-by-you-know-who label. The Verge explains Facebook's new policy as one of including information about their ownership and funding, the level of transparency around their sources, and the existence of accountability systems like a corrections policy. End quote. So, simply being government-funded doesn't make you state-controlled. Therefore, the BBC presumably would get a pass for editorial independence, as would Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. AFP outlines the ongoing disinformation campaign against Qatar. It's the latest round in a regional dispute that goes back to 2017, when Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt cut ties with Qatar over that country's alleged closeness to Iran, and thus to Tehran-backed Islamist groups. The recent disinformation includes social media posts that claim a violent coup d'etat was in progress in Doha, complete with grainy video of machine gun fire, and so on. Some of this stuff came from social media accounts that just popped up, no followers, no nothing. 
none of the corroborative detail one expects would lend verisimilitude to an otherwise bald and unconvincing narrative. It's interesting that AFP calls their story a fact-check. It seems to be just straight-up good reporting, but fact-checking now seems to have a cachet among those who struggle with disinformation and fake news. Perhaps that's fair enough, since it's meta-reporting, that is, reporting about reporting. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Bill Harmer, Chief Evangelist and CISO at SecureAuth, where, as the name implies, they specialize in identity security. He joins us with insights on credential carelessness. One of the things that was really interesting that stood out was the convenience factor, where we look at things like biometrics. If you talk to people about biometrics and ask them, are you comfortable with sharing your biometrics with a, a company so that you can have uh, access, they say no. A lot of them say no, I'm not comfortable with that, I don't trust them because they keep hearing about the hacks. But then you ask how many of them use it and it is, you know, well, if you look at an iPhone, you have to use it. Well, you don't have to, you can go to a, a, a PIN number, but, but everybody does it because they want the convenience. And, mm-hmm. and I've been saying this for years, security with, is a balance of convenience and risk. That's, that's really all it is. If it's too inconvenient to use the security tools, users find a way around it. That's what drove shadow IT. That's what drove, you know, entire industries. It was interesting to see that. And when you start to see it at things like the director versus the non-management level, we were seeing that directors were use, reusing passwords more than uh, regular employees. And, <clears throat> you know, I'd love to try and dig into that deeper to find out, <laughs> is that is that again, is that convenience? Oh, gosh, I'm a director. I'm so busy. Um, or is it just, uh, uh, it doesn't apply to me, right? Is there is there a, a right. level above uh, sort of the applicability? 
So based on, on the data that you collected here, what are the take-homes for you? What, is, what are some of the things we can learn from this? We need to get rid of passwords. We really, really have to start to drive towards a passwordless uh, environment because probably for, I guess, five years now, we've heard about digital transformation. Five years ago, it was kind of a buzzword. Last year, it's sort of the norm. Everybody's talking about digital transformation. COVID, uh, it effectively base jumped everybody into digital transfer. You had no choice, right? Uh, Friday, everybody's working in the office. Monday, everybody's working from home. So mm. digital transformation is part of what we are now, and it will be the new norm, right? We're seeing this already with Shopify, Twitter. They're all saying work from home, work remote. So we're we're going to shut down offices. We don't need to have our offices. You don't have to come back in. So it is the new norm. But in doing that, in setting up your Zscalers, your Palo Altos, your Cisco umbrellas and stuff like that, and creating good, secure communication channels for security everywhere, every one of them looks at it and says, get us a authentication, authenticate the user and send us a SAML token. And then, you know, this zero trust world kicks in. And to me, the, I mean, the, the key to this, you can build all the great infrastructure you want, but the key right there is the identity. Right. And in that identity, it's all hinged on these poorly crafted, reused garbage passwords, and they are dispersed across the world. And, and that's that's something that nobody's really had to deal with before. What do you suppose it's going to take for these sorts of changes to make for people to finally jettison passwords for us to move on to you know whatever that next thing uh, maybe is do you is it possible to imagine uh, an event where we turn that page, or is it going to be more of a slow evolutionary kind of thing? Honestly, I think we might be in that event right now. Um, hmm. I think because companies, uh, people aren't going to do anything just for the sake of doing it, right? There's there's got to be uh, some sort of impending or or critical uh, event that happens, and right now, as companies are sending people home. To work and realizing, okay, they can do it. And they know there's ones that have said, no, you can't do your job from home. And they're going, nope, I can see it's, uh, it's being done. There's others that are going, hey, I don't have to pay for expensive downtown property in San Francisco and New York. <laughs> um, right. Real estate, commercial real estate is going to take a beating after this. Um, but, but all of these things are happening. And what they're realizing is, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to have VPNs. And uh, some, you know, people were out buying extra licenses for the VPNs. But it's around that identity. How can I be sure that it is them? So I think we're going to see a push in identity. Uh, I think it was on Kramer's Mad Money or something like that. They said that this is now a $16 billion industry and climbing. Um, mm. I think so that is part of it. But the other part of it is as you start to see things like digital voting, taxes, all these other things. Our, our social security number is uh, an utter joke as a method of identifying ourselves, right? This is, mm. this is 100% mm. compromised for everybody in, this, in the country. It's, it, it's out there. So what do you do? How do you fix that? And I think this is where we're going to see a, a, a drive or a request from the citizens for a, a sovereign identity, Something that is theirs, that is digitally managed, that is uh, compartmentalized. So that way, when I have to uh, maybe go buy a car and I need to have a credit check done, I share part of it. I don't share the whole thing because right now you just you write down your social security number, your name, your home address, stuff like that. And if they lose right. that bit of paper, you're done. All right. 
Um, so, so it's well, going to be they something. photocopy your driver's license, oh, yeah. right? They photocopy yeah. your driver's license, <laughs> photocopy your passport when you check into the hotel. Yeah. So yeah. how is it that we can find a digital way like an Apple Pay or a, a, you know, a, a Samsung Pay or one of those things where, where I can send a token, I can send an authentication token, it's vetted by third party. And we're seeing that. We're, we're starting to see that in the identity space where we're seeing this convergence of things like identity proofing along with identity uh, and access management and authentication starting to become more of a ubiquitous uh, uh, tool. That's Bill Harmer from SecureAuth. Subscribers to CyberWire Pro can find an extended version of my interview with Bill in the interview selects. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Uh, you've got some interesting information to share about uh, some stuff that's going on within PowerPoint. What's going on here? Yeah, PowerPoint is sort of an interesting uh, format as far as Microsoft Office formats go. Uh, you're all aware that you know, there are tons of uh, malicious Word and Excel documents because they contain macros and then the macros are being used to install a malicious software. Now, PowerPoint was sort of a little bit the oddball here in that PowerPoint doesn't really support macros. Hmm. But what we have seen now is that PowerPoint templates are actually being used. And with PowerPoint templates, you have a feature called add-ins. Uh, well, I guess it's you know, macro by another name, but it has a similar <laughs> uh, functionality where uh, as you open, as you close a PowerPoint document, uh, you can run code, you can download malware, you can start it and do pretty much wow. everything that sort of matters from a malware point of view uh, that uh, macros in Excel and Word allow you to do. Wow. So what specifically are you tracking here? What have you seen? Well, uh, we have seen uh, some documents that are being used to install uh, malicious software. What was sort of interesting here is also the two hooks that are available. Uh, one that's triggered whenever you open a document, and that's by far sort of the more common thing that's being used in invert and Excel macros. The other hook that you have available is when you close the document. And uh, interestingly, in the PowerPoint documents or I should say PowerPoint templates, we have seen that hook is being used, the close hook. And the PowerPoint, of course, is empty. So the user opens it, closes it immediately because nothing to see. And that's sort of when it triggers. Hmm. The assumption here is that maybe that more signatures are looking for the open call, not so much for the close call, or uh, maybe some sandboxes will not detect the close, but only the open not really sure why they do it, but uh, I assume it's a little bit of additional obfuscation here. 
Now, what sort of options are available to protect against this? Because with, you know, Excel, you can disable macros. Do you have that sort of capability within PowerPoint? In PowerPoint, not so much, uh, but in general, if you lock down your Windows system, prevent uh, unwanted software from running, uh, so essentially any kind of whitelisting uh, will help. That's what you should anyway do. That uh, protects you against so many other attacks. And I think there's just another example that the attackers are getting and have always been really uh, creative in how they trick users into installing software. And I think the thing to remember here is that most software, I would say you know, 90%, I don't have any hard numbers of software that infects workstations, is willingly launched by the user. Under a wrong pretext, of course, no matter, uh, I tell them it's something useful, uh, you know, way back to the fake antivirus and such. Uh, mm. So it's not so much about preventing the particular method that's being used to launch the software, but really more about preventing the user from launching software they're not supposed to launch. So there's a there's a user education component here as well. User education is a good part of this, but from a technical point of view, just to prevent the user from launching random software. Yeah. All right, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.